0: This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, non profit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at slash donate. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories Late in the Epoch of Print by Richard Guess and Get Some Rest by Nick Repetrazone Late in the Epoch of Print Written and read by Richard Guess Listing time, 7 minutes, 56 seconds
1: In Blissfield, Vermont, there were 20 houses built no later than 1890, a block of boarded-up 19th century storefronts, a May-to-October French restaurant, and Allerton's rare and used books, an out-of-plum Georgian colonial that was a cult shrine for bibliomaniacs around the globe. Alice Allerton's grandfather sold off some gems from his ancestral library when he was blacklisted out of Dartmouth in 1951. In a few years, he was dealing incunabula, colonial imprints, and Audubon sets. Her own father, fired from UMass for the indiscretion resulting in Alice, sold common-used books by the truckload, a common trade her grandfather loathed. Her father and grandfather liked sitting in their messy nooks on the first floor of the store, chain-smoking the cigarettes that seemed to prolong their lives. Alice marveled at every day that passed without those two touching off the literary kindling. They assumed the customers were all thieves, and they barked at them like watchdogs every few minutes, hectoring anyone who dared buy a book that either father or son held in contempt. The two of them had different lists of contemptible titles, but taken together, they covered about everything affordable in the store. Allerton's rare and used books would someday belong to Alice, her reward for staying in Blissfield after her stepbrothers and her mother had all fled far away. A personality test she took in her junior year of high school suggested that she was best suited for a career as a concert pianist. But she'd never played the piano, and all she really wanted to do was sit in judgment in the bookstore, like her fathers before her did, reviling the stupid and tasteless world. Just like them, she'd been alone her whole life, and she was as good at that as they were. She looked forward to the day when she took sole command of the listing old whale ship of Allerton's. She'd truck all the mass paperbacks to the landfill, disconnect the rotary phones, and become a strictly antiquarian book dealer by appointment only. She would be pursued for her list of rarities and feared for her sway over the market. She would pick up men at book fairs and leave superannuated business cards with disconnected numbers on their hotel nightstands. She would have one employee a girl like her, but not nearly as sharp, who would do all the scut work forever while dreaming, vainly, of someday turning into Alice. Before any of that happened, she had to live through the hateful present. Alice did everything the old men wouldn't, inventory control, sweeping, anything involving driving, tending the ramshackle website, keeping the furnace lit. Most of the time she was in the distant reaches of the bookstore's warren, rooms far out of the old men's sight and interest, where ceiling-high stacks of slowly decaying books bowed the floorboards with their weight, dead books written by generation upon generation of dead writers. Their tonnage pressed down on Alice like the ocean on a diver. Often they made her angry. How stupid these people had been! Their writings revealed the dead as ignorant, lying, racist, Christ-frightened scribblers, and as utterly indiscriminate readers. They came from stifling societies where the ceiling of allowable pleasure wasn't high enough to stand under. They were incontinent with their opinions, most of them simple-minded, and they braided them incessantly, leaving vast deposits of pointless pages that might not completely disintegrate for centuries. The used books, she wasn't allowed to handle the rare ones, made her livid, but more often they made her despondent. How sad these people had been! Their depression was palpable as book dust and contagious to Alice. They stuffed their otherwise unread books with small things from their small lives, trusting the weight of the pages to preserve their mementos. They pressed shopping lists and snapshots and dance cards, invitations and receipts and funeral programs, bridal garters, love notes, sometimes money. Alice found money only once or twice a year, as cash was the one thing the survivors looked out for. She found all the other sorts of specimens daily. The saddest things were the flowers and leaves that floated up without any hint of provenance. They came without notes or names. They didn't flag obviously significant passages. So far as Alice could tell, they memorialized nothing more than themselves. Someone long ago reduced to bones had plucked a violet at a Grange picnic, saved a yellow leaf from the autumn flames, stowed it in a book and never seen it or thought of it again, inadvertently bequeathing it to Alice, who found such things supremely pathetic. Touching a desiccated leaf in a book was like touching a corpse. Dried leaves and petals crumbled on discovery. In life, these dead had been idiots, but that made their disappearance even sadder. They knew so little happiness or power. Moved to grief, Alice wished she could give them all another chance, to unwrite their books, to do something else besides writing, to clutch their souvenirs to their hearts, to at least try to enjoy themselves more. When she was younger, working afternoons and weekends through high school, she began an archaeology project. She tweezered the flowers and leaves from the books into acid-free sleeves and filed them, indexed by the titles of the books where they were found, in archival boxes. It took her until she was twenty to notice that when she filed her relics, she never looked at them again. She reinterred these things, she marked their new graves, and that was enough. She sometimes wondered what she might find hidden in her grandfather's multiple sets of Das Kapital and her father's shelf-loads of inscrutable 80s criticism. Faded photostats of atomic secrets? Love notes from her sophomore mother to her English 279 professor? Literally aching, can't wait till 3.30. Maybe, she thought, the last few hundred books with the Allerton family bookplate, books receive their value from esteem, should go straight out the back door, unexamined, the minute the last old man tipped backward in his chair for good. So at twenty, she stopped reburying her finds. Some of them would be rediscovered by the tourists who wandered in early summer evenings after their braised rabbit dinners to brave the old man's ill humor. But most of them would remain in the books where they'd been tucked in 1941 or 1893, and eventually the books would crumble or catch fire or get trucked to the landfill in the first week of Alice's coming regime. For now she would do her part for the dead by ensuring they were forgotten. How furious that would make them. Leaving their trash where she found it would take away their false comfort. No more afterlife in the memories of the living. When she finally came to think of it as merely a bookmark collection, Alice sold her indexed archive to someone she'd never met before, an interior designer from Montreal. She'd wandered in from the restaurant in a yellow sundress and didn't look like she was going to buy anything. She was the sort of person who picks up the objects on your mantle just to have a look at them, and when she was done taking books down from their shelves and looking at their dust jackets and putting them up again, she gravitated to Alice's stacked file card drawers, opened one, and rummaged in it for half an hour. When Alice saw her come up for air, she said, I'll give you all the drawers for 200. The interior designer promptly counted out 1020s, gushing about the brainstorm she was having, the uses she could give to these treasures. Was Alice familiar with Latour's grammar of flowers? What did she make of the preponderance of white roses, meaning silence, over tulips, which meant love's confession? The interior designer was an anglophone, but as she counted the bills and rang up the sale, Alice thought she saw subtitles under her chin. I
0: can't believe you're letting these go for nothing. You have no idea what they're worth. Richard Guess is a writer, musician, and visual artist from Atlanta. He has an MFA from UNC Greensboro, and was most recently published in Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, 25. Get Some Rest, written and read by Nick Repatrizone. Listing time, 12 minutes, 34 seconds.
2: Divya watched the man search for an entrance to the sleep disorder center. He pressed his face against the one-way glass, eyes scrunching small. Ryan had told her about this entertainment. She felt guilty the first time, but now thought of it as an exchange... For what she dealt with. Complaints about the CPAP masks, midnight requests for water, unending questions about the electrodes. She pushed open the door. Come on in. Craig introduced himself, thanked her, and explained how anxious he'd been. I don't love the idea of someone watching me snore. Did locked the door behind him and backpedaled down the hall? It's not that bad, really. Most people like it here. The bed is pretty comfortable. Craig shifted his backpack from the right to the left while walking. He wore pajama bottoms. That really wasn't necessary. He could have changed in his room. Divya had printed a handout of suggestions for doctors to give referred patients. Most people didn't check the list. One, you may not sleep naked, even if you pull up the sheets. Two, your partner or spouse may not stay the night with you. 3. Please do not bring any linens or pillows, head or full body. 4. You'll have your own room. Please do not arrive at the sleep center in your undergarments. How about no playing with yourself, Ryan suggested, or when wearing the CPAP mask, no one can hear you scream. He was a night technician and looked at Divya with a stare that her mother would chalk up to interest. But Divya thought her mother was wrong about most things especially anything related to men. She hadn't been serious with anyone in years, and her mother said it was her own fault. She was too picky, too neurotic, too final about everything. One wrong move or one perceived wrong move, and a guy was done. She was trying to be less final about everything. More open to, as her mother put it, the way of the wind. Ryan only gelled the sides and back of his black hair, leaving the top tussled and puffy but Divya still thought he was good-looking. He seemed to really care about the things that he cared about, and Smiths, eminent domain, and his sister. His phone was full of photos of her at state band competitions, holding trophies larger than her torso. She wanted to give Ryan a chance, only he didn't seem very interested. Craig sat at the edge of the bed, backpack on his lap. He looked around the room and said it was more like a hotel than he'd expected. He explained that his wife first complained about the snoring last winter. I put on some weight, for the cold weather, you know. Weight usually enhances the apnea. Divya fast-forwarded the instructional video, passed a long introduction. Will you be in here with me? She shook her head. I'll be near the room monitoring, along with a technician. Divya felt it was necessary to mention that. She used to say male technician, but that adjective sometimes got a strange response. Ryan was right about adding one item to the list. A guy once did have a little too much fun in bed, and Divya had to interrupt with the intercom and plead with him to stop, or they'd have to call the police. I'm going to start the video in a minute, but I do want to tell you a little bit about the mask. She lifted one from the mannequin in the dresser. CPAP stands for continuous positive air pressure. Apnea is a pause in your breathing when you wake up for a moment. The machine pushes air down your throat and it opens back up without you waking. Craig nodded, so she continued. Snoring is your body's response to no air. The CPAP basically fixes your snoring. It's pretty amazing. Is it difficult to breathe? No. In fact, you won't even remember it. Then she'll be sleeping. She lifted the mask over her face. Her breath filled the plastic frame. It's pretty comfortable, she said, muffled. She took off the mask, and it's that easy. You feel uncomfortable for whatever reason. You just take it off. That's it. Nothing to worry about. That's great. Craig set his backpack on the bed. I've got one last question. What if I fall asleep during the video? Dibby laughed, but then she stopped. That's never happened before. Well, Craig nodded his head. I'm unique. Ryan mixed chocolate milk and left the spoon in the glass while he drank. The tip poked near his left eye. So how's your sister doing? She's only 18, Ryan. Divya's sister, Madhu, once picked her up after a shift. Ryan hadn't stopped asking about her since. And I'm only 22, he said. Twenties when everything changes. You're going to have to wait a year. Divya wondered why Ryan never asked her out. She literally looked exactly like her sister. They even sounded the same. Her own mother would confuse their voices. Don't be so overprotective. How can I prove my maturity to you? You can stop drinking chocolate milk at midnight. Divya watched Craig roll over, the hose wrinkling with his movement. He asked if she could put the machine under the bed to muffle the sound. His eyes were still open. He'd only slept for a half hour with the mask on. The rest of the time was spent rustling and shifting. He had to sleep for three hours for them to get an accurate reading. Ryan classified three types of snoring. The Eddie Vedder, throat music, and the pause. His impersonation of each was spot on. He said his father used to snore. Apnea probably killed him. Well, a heart attack killed him, but you could connect the dots. Ryan had majored in medical statistics at the University of Colorado, but changed his major the final year. Do you snore? Ryan smiled. Nope. So why did your dad? He was overweight. He had a crooked nose. Had it smashed from football, that probably contributed but he also didn't take care of himself. Ryan said that he didn't have those machines back then. Fucking dental brace, like headgear. His father had worn it for one night, and then Ryan found it in the trash, buried under an overcooked omelet. said that he couldn't breathe. Felt like he was suffocating. I'm sorry. It's not your fault, right? Mom told him to get help. He wouldn't even do a sleep study. Couldn't stand being watched like that. Ryan rolled his chair back to the screen. Craig shifted onto his back one final time, and then he stopped moving. His chest raised and lowered, and the machine sifted air at an even pace. Ryan nodded his head. All right. Old guy's got it. I'm surprised. Divya bit the tip of her pen and lifted a long sheet that flowed from the printer. Take a break from that. Guy settled in. He'll be out for a while. Ryan smiled. Let's go have some fun. Ryan kicked the soccer ball down the hallway, and they both raced toward it. Divya laughed, stretched for the back of Ryan's shirt, but couldn't reach. He rolled the ball beneath his sneaker. Then he touched it between her legs, pinching her arm as he ran past. He backpedaled, tugged the ball with him, and teased her forward. Ryan stopped the ball, rested his hands on his hips, and lifted his chest. No match for me. After a moment, he lowered his shoulders and tried to catch his breath. Divya laughed, her hair falling in front of her face. I can't lie. I'm out of shape. She tugged the ball from under his foot. Did you used to play? High school. Then I just stopped. Me too. She kicked the ball past him and it rolled against Craig's door. Shit. Nice one. I don't think that will wake him. Ryan crossed his arms and leaned against the wall. You really going to med school? Did you wanted to. She was 25, a few years out of college, and never planned on being a sleep technician for the rest of her life. A somnologist? Yes. She wanted to do it, and had worried herself sick over it, so much that her father told her to make a decision. One way or the other. The worst possible thing, he said, was to never get any rest. Ryan clapped his hands. So are you? I think so. Divya shook her head and tossed back her hair. Sorry. I was thinking about applications and stuff. So much work. You should go for it. Really. Divya wondered why Ryan cared. He could be making small talk, but he'd brought this up before. It nearly became the nag of a friend, someone who couldn't stand her to spend late nights prepping gelled electrode connections or replacing the coffee filter for the next morning. He shook his head. I'm serious. This job is for me, but it's not for you. You wouldn't be saying that if I was Badu. What's that supposed to mean? She heeled down the soccer ball and thought that she heard air escape. She felt like a little girl who'd rushed headfirst into a tantrum But she also felt like she could tell Ryan the truth, at least in this place, where it was dark and quiet, save for the easy trill of the CPAP. Why do you like her? I don't know. I like how she looks. That doesn't make sense. Divya flipped the ball up to her hands. She was pretty good, actually. Had played club soccer until college. She was about to say something else, but Ryan raised his hand. Wait a second, he said. What? Ryan ran down the hall into the room. He pulled his forearm along his sweaty forehead and stared into the monitor. Shit. What happened? Unique is living up to his name. Craig sat on the side of the bed. His loose electrodes spread across the sheets. The hose draped like a dead snake from his left hand and the CPAP machine sat beneath his feet. Ryan stood in the doorway. Mr. Boyle, you okay? I want to speak to Dana, Craig said. Ryan was about to correct him, but Divya punched him. Craig, how can we help you? I couldn't breathe. He shook his head. I thought I was going to die. Divya folded her hands against her stomach. Remember what I said? She put her hand on his shoulder. It's only air. It's to help you. I got nervous. She took the hose from his hand and checked the connection to the machine. Then she lay down on the other side of the bed and asked him to turn the machine on. Press the blue button. He did, and air streamed from the mask. She eased it over her chin and mouth and tucked the rubber cushions into her nostrils. She looked at Ryan before closing her eyes. Her breath mixed with the forced air. She never had any problem sleeping, but could imagine herself using the machine. It was necessary, sometimes, to be coaxed into relaxation.
0: Necropatrazone is the author of two books of poetry, Oblations and This Is Not About Birds. Other writing has appeared in Esquire, The Kenyon Review, Iowa Review, and Shenandoah. Listener-supported Boundoff is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund. Further support comes from the Google Grants program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off, copyright Bound off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.